0: Well, let's get after it. If you have a Bible, let's go to the book of Acts. If you don't have a Bible with you, there should be a hardback black Bible uh, underneath a seat around you. We'll be in the book of Acts. Uh, Get used to hearing that. Uh, We'll be in the Acts for a while now. Uh, We are starting a new sermon series this morning, um, so it's a good morning to start tracking along with us. Uh, On the book of Acts, okay? Um, A couple weeks ago, I was at a little local Bible conference um, and i had been asked to to speak for, do a little three-hour seminar on biblical interpretation. So I did that in the a.m. in the morning. And in the evening, uh, or in the the afternoon, I was able to sit in and hear a presentation on world religions, uh, primarily um, Islam and uh, Mormonism. It was really interesting. I learned a lot uh, just about the history of the religions, uh, what they believe, how it interacts with uh, Christianity. And one of the things I learned that I never realized before was that Muslims, um, particularly in the Quran, call uh, Jews and Christians the people of the book. The people of the book, the book being the, the scriptures, the Old and New Testament. Um, and I, was, I heard that and learned that and, and kind of leaned back and, and looked at a friend and was like, I kind of like that. I, kinda, I think we should run with that. I think we should claim that as our own. The people of the book. Uh, the people who study and live by and digest the, the words that God has given us. The, the revelation that he's given us through his word. Um, and my prayer has been um, and, and continues to be uh, for us as a church that we would be a church of the book. Um, And I think if you come here consistently, um, it it would be hard to argue with that. It would be hard to argue with the fact that we take the scriptures seriously, um, that they're a priority to us. And so every week we'll come and a good part of our service will be reading and thinking and and talking about what the scriptures say to us, what they mean to us, how they apply to our lives. And one of the ways we love to do that is to study books and just to walk through a book of the Bible together over a long period of time. And so this morning we're going to start with the book of Acts uh, and we'll walk through the book of Acts Um, I'm aware as we start a book sermon series um, that I'm not just inviting myself to study it and inviting myself to really dig into it and get to know it and and see how all the pieces fit together. Um, But I'm inviting you. I'm inviting our whole church family to do so with me. Um, And so I know when we did our Hebrew series, not too long ago, uh, that a good number of you really tracked along with us and did reading on your own, read it um, consistently during the week, talked about it with friends and family, and then we're here consistently as we walk through it together. Uh, and, And from what I heard, you were very blessed by that. And so that's the invitation for you this morning. We'll spend a large amount of time, okay, this is a long book, we'll spend a good amount of time walking through the book of Acts. I want to invite you this morning. Um, to make it your own over the next few months uh, as we do so as a church family, okay? Lots, lots, lots for us to to look at as we go through it. So we'll start uh, verse 1, Acts chapter 1, verse 1. We'll just look at the first five verses this morning, the sermon titled Prolegomena, uh, or things to say before you say something, kind of like an introduction. Uh, So we'll try to get a little bit introduced to the book of Acts this morning and then be ready to really dive in next week, okay? Acts 1, we'll pick it up in verse 1. Please read with me. But to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, you heard from me, for John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. Okay, this is how the book of Acts starts. Um, So you have this in your worship guide. We'll we'll do uh, a couple quick facts about Acts. I apologize for the rhyme, okay? It was just too easy. I couldn't resist. I thought about doing like a three-point alliteration after it, but I withheld. Um, some, some quick facts about acts. Okay. You see here, he says in the first book, verse one, he starts it off in the first book. Oh, Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach. Um, acts is a sequel. If you're not aware, acts is, we would call it part two uh, of a work that began with the gospel of Luke, Luke and acts go together. It's part one and part two. It's a, it's a sequel, access. Um In the Bible world, right, people will just say Luke slash Acts. I mean, they're one work. We've separated them. Um, we've even put a book between them. Um, but they're really, they're really one work. This is Luke um, presenting a comprehensive account of the beginning of Christianity. Uh, and he starts with the Gospel of Luke and then moves into Acts. Um, so this is the second book, okay? Um, now, it's written by uh, a guy we would call Dr. Luke, okay? It's written by Dr. Luke, um, but we we would talk about dual authorship or the fact that there are two people who who wrote the book and really all of the scriptures. Um, What we know about Dr. Luke is he was obviously a doctor. Uh, He was a physician. Uh, Luke was a very smart man, very educated man. Um, He had gone through uh, probably intensive training um, for his medical practice. Uh, He uses big words, okay? Uh, So what we know about Luke is it was written in Greek. Most of the New Testament was written in Greek. And it was written in a very fancy Greek, like a very classical Greek, a very sophisticated, educated Greek. So, I mean, you could, if you saw two pieces of writing, probably tell the difference between the one written by a guy with a PhD and the one written by a guy who had dropped out in middle school, Right. I mean, you could probably tell the difference, not judging or anything like that, but you could, I mean, different kinds of sentences, different kinds of vocab. Mark is this guy. Luke is this guy. OK. Luke is the educated, um, sophisticated Ph.D. kind of philosopher. Uh, so he writes um, this book. He's writing to a guy we named Theophilus. OK. Uh, this is his audience. He's writing to a guy named Theophilus. Um, Luke is writing. Again, though, we would say the the Holy Spirit is kind of the divine author. There's two authors. Uh, As Christians, we believe that the scriptures were given to us by God. They're inspired by God. And so while Luke's writing, the Holy Spirit is kind of breathing into his words uh, and making sure what he writes down is what would edify you and I, the church. Um, So he's writing to Theophilus. Um, Theophilus is an interesting conversation um, To think about who this is um, What it means uh, You might have a note in the bottom of your Bible Theophilus means friend of God or lover of God uh, So people have wondered Is he just writing to in general Christians To anyone who might be considered a friend of God Or one who loves God um, We think Theophilus was a person There are reasons we think that um, But here's what I want us to do I want you to flip to Luke chapter 1 Okay? So let's go to part 1 of the volume And look at the beginning of Luke. Luke 1, the introduction he gives us in Luke 1, is also an introduction to both parts, right? Because it's part 1 and part 2. So when he starts off the book of Luke, he's actually starting off the whole thing, Luke and Acts. And he gives us a little more about his purpose in writing in Luke chapter 1. And he lets us know something about Theophilus as well, okay? Uh, So Luke chapter 1, we'll look at verse 1 through 4. Luke chapter 1, he says this, inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us, it seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus that you may have certainty concerning the things you have been taught. So he writes to Theophilus and he calls him excellent. He calls him the most excellent Theophilus. Here's why we think Theophilus is a guy, is a human person, one particular individual, because that is like a term of respect, okay? You don't use that. Anytime you've ever seen someone write those words in Greek, they're talking to another person. Think like we might say your honor, right? Or most excellent, Um, Or Your Excellency. Okay, So he's writing to Theophilus, and he's writing so that, he says in Luke 1, he may be sure of the things he's been taught. He's been taught certain things, and Luke's writing so that he would be sure of those things. He would know what the truth is. So we think Theophilus is a new convert. Sorry about that. We think he's a new convert of high social status. We think he has just started believing, um, and we think that he has some sort of Uh, In the the higher ups in society, Um, whether he's in the government or whether he's just a very wealthy individual, the most excellent Theophilus is a term of endearment, is a term of respect. Okay, Um, And Luke is writing again so that he would know that what he's heard, that what he has received from the people teaching him um, is true uh, and is trustworthy. So he's writing so that they'd be convinced, he'd be convinced of the faith. Acts and Luke, um, or we might call like an intellectual book. They're, they're, they're written, he says, in an orderly way. He wants there to be clear pieces of the puzzle that fit together. He wants someone to be able to, to hear the story of Jesus and the early church and it to make sense to them, it to be clear to them, it to be trustworthy to them. So what Luke says is he says, Hey, I had sources, He says, I went around um, and I talked to people, I read what people had written down, I interviewed people, I went to the places where these things happened, and I sat down as a doctor with all of my education, and I said, how can I write an orderly account? How can I write something so that people would read it and say, I can trust that, I can trust that, that makes sense to me, and now I understand the truths about Jesus and the truths about his followers the truths about Jesus, and the truths about his followers. Dr. Luke, um, not only was he a doctor, we know he also uh, traveled with Paul on some of his missionary journeys. Uh, So in Acts, we'll see this as we work our way through it, Um, there are times when he stops saying I and starts saying we. And the we he's talking about is Paul. He was there for some of the stuff that happened in Acts as he traveled and worked with Paul. Okay, flip back to Acts chapter (coughs) 1. Acts chapter 1, we have a book written by Dr. Luke, part 2 of Luke-Acts. He's writing to Theophilus, a new convert, um, someone high up in the world. And he's writing so that the the world would make sense to him, so that Christianity would make sense, uh, so that he would understand the things he's believing and hearing and and living out. Um, Acts is also a a historical book about the movement that we would call the early church. um, so, if you look at history, um, and I don't know if you, you would say that you like history, or you don't like history. I think everyone likes history. It just depends on whether you had good history teachers or not. I mean, all history is are stories. Everyone loves stories. You look at history, you have drama, you have murder, you have love, you have politics. I mean, you have everything that makes a good story. Um, but if you look at history, there are a couple things that stand out as weird, that stand out as anomalies, uh, things that don't make sense. And one of them... Is you and I. I mean the fact that we're here this morning. If we were just going to take a second and think. The fact that we have gathered here this morning. Is kind of weird. It's kind of a weird historical event. Historical phenomena. Because you had this guy. 2000 years ago. Who lived and he taught. And he had a following during his life. He dies the the death of a criminal on a cross. um, The the Roman um, way of executing a criminal. And then shortly after his death the world just explodes with his followers. I mean, this thing called the early church starts and these people start following him and converting others to follow him and to worship him and to serve him. And no matter how much they're persecuted, I mean, or how much they're killed and threatened, no matter how um, uh, much time passes between them and the life of their leader, no matter where they are in the world, they keep going. There's still this core strong group and this Eastern spinoff of, of Judaism that started 2000 years ago on another continent has now worked itself out to you and I in 2012, sitting around reading what Dr. Luke wrote about Jesus. Maybe just think about it. it's kind of weird. It's kind of a, a different thing. Well, well, acts is what happened. Acts is the account of how that church got started. Of why you and I are even here today. Um, and as such, it's, it's interesting just as history. I mean, it's interesting just to see what was happening back then. And then it's interesting for you and I, because it can help us be the church that we're supposed to be. I mean, it can help us live as Jesus' people the way that he would have us live as his people. You could almost think of Acts as part one in a play. And we're in a later part of the play. We'll see this in a while when we get to the end of Acts, but Acts has no ending. Acts kind of ends this real anti way, like a dot, dot, dot. And it ends that way on purpose, because you and I are the dot, dot, dot. The story continues as people serve and worship and follow Jesus, um, where he calls them and, and um, how he asks them to do so. And so you have um, kind of this histo- history of the, of the movement we call the church Um, And it's also a record of of Jesus' continued ministry, his continued ministry. I want you to look at this with me. Look in verse 1 again. He says, in the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus, what's the word, (coughs) began to do and teach. Now, for a close reader here, this is interesting because it seems to be implying that in Acts, Jesus will continue to do and to teach. We might call Luke um, the teaching and work of Jesus, part one, and Acts the teaching and work of Jesus, part two. It's more interesting when we start reading the book of Acts and realize Jesus doesn't actually have a big role in Acts. Like, we'll see this. He disappears from the stage very quickly, and he really only comes back a couple different times. If anything, if, if we want to talk about him being there, he's way behind the scenes, One author I read this week said Jesus has almost this haunting presence in the book of Acts, where he's not there, but it seems like he's everywhere. It seems like he is there. It seems like he is working. It seems like he is teaching. And so you have this book about Jesus' continued ministry, what he has continued to do and continued to teach his people even after his resurrection. We've hit on this a little bit over the past couple of weeks with the phrase um, that you and I, the church, are not a memorial society. I mean, we don't just come to, to remember somebody who died a long time ago. We come because that same person is alive today. We come because we're following him, because we're hearing from him, because we're serving him. Because he has been resurrected. Which, in fact, is what Luke says as he starts this story. If you look in um, verse number uh, 3 here. So he has um, given his um, apostles some commands uh, through the Holy Spirit. Um, Verse 1-5 through is largely a recap of Luke 24. At the very end of his book, before he starts new material in verse 6. But look in verse 3. He presented himself alive to them after his suffering, or after his passion, after his death. By many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days, and speaking to them about the kingdom of God. So, so this same Jesus, the one who they were following um, during his life, the one who was killed in front of them for the whole world to see in Jerusalem. Luke says, he became alive again. And for approximately 50 days, between his death and between what we would call Pentecost... He he showed himself to them for 40 days. he, He sat with them and talked with them and taught them. He gave them many proofs. The same Jesus who died was resurrected. This is when we're trying to understand the reality of the church, why you and I exist and how it's weird that you and I exist. This is maybe the most important thing Luke has to tell us. He says this, he says, Jesus's resurrection is the event that created the early church is the event that is responsible for you and I being here worshiping and reading and singing. Christianity is about something that happened. Does that make sense? It's not about necessarily moral teaching. It's not about necessarily an inner experience. It's not about necessarily what's happened to people around us. It's about a historical event. Something that actually happened in time, space, and history approximately 2,000 years ago. That changed changed the world. That changed the game. If you notice the disciples, they were not prepared for Jesus to be raised again from the dead. If you go read the accounts, you can read it at the end of Luke, okay? They weren't expecting Jesus to be raised from the dead. When he raised from the dead and presented himself to them, uh, they didn't go, oh, good, we've been waiting. We've been waiting for your resurrection because you've been teaching us about it and we've been waiting for it and we're glad that you are now back again from the dead. They did what? They doubted. They were surprised. They were confused. If you follow along at the end of Luke, the the movement had died. I mean, the, the, the few people who stayed true to Jesus up to his bitter death, had locked themselves away in Jerusalem and were hiding from the authorities. Scared. Lost. And then all of a sudden, they weren't. And Luke says it's because he was alive again. You see, historians have a hard time explaining the beginning of the church. Because here's what we know. There were people like Jesus up to 50 years before him and 50 years after him who claimed to be the messiah who had kind of this following of jewish people and who then died a violent death at the hands of the romans and when that happened one of two things happened the movement itself died or they found a new leader what never happened was the followers going he came alive again everything's back on track again But that's exactly what happened with Christianity. That's exactly what happened to Jesus and what the early church was saying about him. People have lots of different theories about what happened and why the church started. Um, Some say this was just a way of them talking about Jesus' continued presence in their hearts, um, his teaching living on through them. There's a few problems with that. One is that's not what the language itself means. If that's what they meant, they had words to say those type of things. Um, but the Greek words they used were resurrection. They used resurrection. Um, and then others thought, well, you know, they, they, they wanted so badly for Jesus to still be alive that they kind of just imagined it. And they kind of thought really hard about it. And it kind of became this group hallucination type thing. And, and that seems to be appealing on a psychological reason at first. But then again, you have to come back to the reality that in the first century for these people... They weren't expecting a resurrection. That wasn't something that anybody made up. That wasn't something that would have made sense to anybody. It surprised them as much as it surprised the Romans. As much as it surprised the the people who were not following Jesus. So he was dead and then he's alive again. And he spends a large amount of time proving it to his disciples. Showing them many proofs. And this is the event. This is the historical happening that sets a fire off. A fire that is burned and spread throughout the world until it reaches you and I in 2012 in Sherdoin, Texas. So resurrection. Um, we would say that this resurrection is physical, bodily life after the grave. Jesus was dead, he was in the grave. And then he was alive again. Physically, bodily alive. You could touch him. This is an important point. Okay? He wasn't. Um, A ghost. In fact, some of the disciples thought he was a ghost, and he proved to them that he wasn't. He said, touch me. He said, look, I can eat. We do know this about Jesus, though. Again, you can read this in Luke. Um, He had kind of this glorified body. That's the word we would use, a glorified physical body. Um, In that, he could do certain things that you and I can't do with our physical bodies. He could walk through a locked door. So he could kind of manipulate his physicality, right, in ways that you and I were not there yet. Um, according to the scriptures, we will be one day first Corinthians. Paul says what happened to Jesus is going to be what happens to us. He's our prototype, our first fruit. He's the example, the blueprint. So Jesus is raised from the dead. He's physically risen again. And he says, he he appears to them and talks to them about the kingdom of God. Verse three here, he appears to them and, and speaks to them about the kingdom of God. This should make us smile. If we've been going through the messy kingdom series, which we've been doing for the past seven or eight weeks here at the church, um, This idea of the kingdom, that God's reign was breaking into the world, into creation, and that it was happening through Jesus. This was the central teaching of Jesus. This is what his life was all about, was the kingdom of God, preaching the kingdom, and then acting out the kingdom of God. And what the resurrection does is it, in a sense, confirms the reality of the kingdom of God. It, in a sense, backs up Jesus' claims to be king and to be bringing in the kingdom of God. You see, the, the Romans executed Jesus as a false pretender for the throne. And Jesus raises him again, in a sense, overturning the decision. In a sense, saying, "No, that what Jesus was doing in his work on the cross as he died was, in fact, the promises of God being fulfilled. When Jesus raised from the dead, um, his earliest followers did not go. It proves that miracles happen. And his, earlier fo- his earliest followers did not go, it proves that there's life after death. They believed that before Jesus raised from the dead. That wasn't what it proved to them. What it proved to them was that he was who he said he was. And he was doing what he said he was doing. You had all of these Jewish promises about the kingdom of God, about God coming back into creation and judging what is wrong and fighting the battle against that which harms his people. And bringing grace and forgiveness and mercy and peace. And when Jesus raises from the dead, his followers go. The kingdom the kingdom was here. The Kingdom has started. There is forgiveness available for us. His death on the cross was the battle against evil, was payment for our sins. And a new world is opened up to us—a world where new things are possible, where we can have closeness with God and grace and peace. So Jesus' resurrection, as a historical event, starts the church. It explains the existence of the church. And then it also does this. It kind of sustains the life and the ministry of the early church. And this is, again, what we might mean by, by saying Jesus continues to speak. He continues to do and to teach. The church, again, is, we, don't, we don't just come to remember his death and remember that a long time ago he was with us. We come because he is still with us. He is still alive. He is still inaugurated as the king of the world. So we'll talk about this a little bit more next week when we pick up in verse six and we talk about the ascension where Jesus goes and takes his, his seat at the throne in heaven, God's right hand, okay? Um, but the, the point of the ascension, ascension what, it, what it means to us um, is that Jesus is now installed as the world's true Lord, as its rightful king. Um, you have... In Matthew, at the end of Matthew's gospel, after Jesus is raised from the dead, he comes to the disciples and says, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. All authority on heaven and on earth has been given to me. And I think that's one of the most overlooked verses in the Bible. If if you notice, that's right before the Great Commission, which is then go and make disciples, the reason the early church and, and Jesus' followers went into the world to tell other people about Jesus is precisely because He wasn't just in their hearts, because He was the King of everything, and so He deserves and has bought and paid for my neighbor's worship and obedience, and He died for the people at my workplace, and for the city of Sugarland and the state of Texas and the nation of the United States and for the global community. We are all summoned to obey, to worship, to serve, to find true life as human beings following him. The resurrection, the ascension, it means he is still active. He is still alive. He is still working and moving and changing. He's still finding people. He's still seeking and saving the lost as he was in the Gospel of Luke. It's what Jesus has continued to do and to teach. Now, if you keep reading in verse 4, so Jesus presents himself alive um, to his disciples. He, he teaches them more about the kingdom of God. And then while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, You heard from me, for John baptized with water. But you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So he tells them, stay in Jerusalem. They're from Galilee. They might want to go home. He says, no, stay here. Something's about to happen. A promise is about to be fulfilled. This ancient promise of old is about to be fulfilled in and through you. And he reminds them of John. If you remember, John is his older cousin. ...who baptized with water. He took people to the Jordan River. He dunked them in the water, immersed them in the water, and then brought them out of the water. And it was the sign of repentance and and getting ready for God's kingdom to come. And and Jesus says, the same way that you were dunked in the water with John, now you're going to be dunked in the water with the Holy Spirit. You'll receive the promise of the Holy Spirit. So the church is not only characterized by a response to the resurrection... To the risen and reigning Lord, but also by the gift of the Holy Spirit, by the reception of the promise. Now, according to um, thousands of years of, of Christian orthodoxy, when you talk about God, you're talking about one God in three persons. It's what we call the Trinity, okay? Um, and now, if you're looking for a cute, easy formula to get it down in your mind, you're not going to find it. And that's kind of the point of the Trinity, is when we start talking about God, we run out of words that make sense, as we should. He's God. He's not us. We can't measure him and get a, you know, record him and scientifically document him. We run out of the language to talk about him. But, but Christians have developed ways of talking faithfully about him, and, and one of those ways is the Trinity. God, one God, and three persons, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, This gift that Jesus says is coming to the church in a way he has not been available before, as he ascends to the Father. Now, the Holy Spirit is interesting. You and I live in a church world of confusion about the Holy Spirit, okay? He is—I don't know if you have this. I mean, do you have the—we just had Christmas, okay? So family was in town. But I don't know if you experienced—but sometimes in a family, there's like a black sheep of the family, Right? And when, when that person, man or woman, shows up, everything gets kind of awkward. You don't really know what to say to them. It's hard to make small talk, things right. like that. Well, the Holy Spirit's kind of like the black sheep of the Trinity, okay? He shows up, and things kind of get awkward for people. Um, typically, when the Holy Spirit's around, people start dancing, and they start speaking in weird languages, and rich people just get uncomfortable, we want to wash <laughs> our hands, and oh, we, just don't, we don't like it, right? And so, so there's one tradition that has almost, in a sense, completely ignored the Holy Spirit. And when we talk about the Holy Spirit, we give him lip service and then move on before someone starts dancing and and yelling, right? And that's kind of the tradition I was raised up in, right? You you just kind of, you don't want to really focus there. Things will get weird for everybody. And then there's this other tradition completely that that is all about the Holy Spirit, right? And everything's about this baptism with the Holy Spirit. and, And everything's about this, again, the speaking in tongues and this loud, extravagant worship and things like that. And, and we live, again, just kind of in this church world of, of these two pendulums, of these two um, kind of confusing ways of thinking about the Holy Spirit. Now, here's the truth about Acts. And I, I think we mentioned this in our Messy Kingdom series. It's called the Acts of the Apostles. People have thought maybe that's not the best title for the book um, because really only a couple of the apostles are really focused on during the book. We'll see this. It's not really the Acts of the Apostles. It's the Acts of a couple apostles. And then others have said, well, well, really a better title would be the Acts of Jesus. This is what Jesus continued to do and teach. Then, well, yeah, that, that makes more sense from, from Luke himself. But again, Jesus is not there very much. I mean, he's just not on the, the page. He's just not there in the direct scene. And then others still have said, perhaps it's the Acts of the Holy Spirit. <clears throat> the Holy Spirit seems to be the hero in the book of Acts. We'll see this as we walk through it. When the Holy Spirit shows up, it's a red flag to us because something big's about to happen. Something powerful is about to occur because he has showed up and is about to do something on behalf of the Father and the Son. Um, talking about the Holy Spirit, we would say he's the, the mediator of the presence and power of God. Luke will have much more to say about the Holy Spirit as we keep studying and we'll keep talking about him. We'll have to learn to be comfortable with him. I'll have to learn to be comfortable with him, and we'll get to know the Holy Spirit um, during our our study of Acts here. Um, But he's the the mediator of God's presence and power. Um, This is his role in the Old Testament and his assumed role in the New Testament. In Genesis 1, um, the Spirit of God is hovering over the waters, kind of God's presence, his locality, his power within creation without God being a part of creation. In the Old Testament, occasionally there'll be prophets who are filled up with the Spirit, And they start speaking and they start working on behalf of God in powerful ways. In the New Testament, the Holy Spirit um, is um, inspiring Jesus, is moving through Jesus. Even here, we see as he's teaching the disciples in verse 2, he's doing so through the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is around when Jesus' words are coming out of his mouth. And the Holy Spirit continues to be around for the early church as this um, kind of recognition of God's power and his presence. The Holy Spirit, again, we'll have lots more to say on him as we, we keep going through our study. But the Holy Spirit is, is the, the joy inside of our hearts, the, the encouragement being spoken to us when we're with Christian brothers and sisters and, and fellowshipping. The, the Holy Spirit, we might say, is the, the sense of celebration and victory we feel and we feel it's rightfully part of ours when we sing songs about Jesus reigning and defeating Satan and sin and evil. The Holy Spirit is the one who, who both causes and then comforts our tears when we've been convicted of our sin, when we realize that we're broken and we need a Savior. The Holy Spirit is the one who, who speaks truth and clarity and transforming realities into our lives as we're reading the scriptures all those in, in war maybe are ways of, of talking about the holy spirit it's it's god's presence and power among us and he says this um the way john baptized you with water you went into the water you came out that's going to be the way that you as my people will be given the holy spirit you'll be submerged in the holy spirit and so we'll, we'll wrap up um these first five verses with a couple of different sentences okay the first one is this In the work of Jesus, through the Spirit, so so through Jesus' death and then now resurrection, and then through his Spirit given to his people, God was and is, continues to be so, at work, creating a new world of justice and beauty, grace and peace. We've talked about how this is the point of the kingdom of God. God is not evacuating people from creation. He's transforming creation. He's reordering the world around us. There's a whole new world at work. This is God working and moving, establishing, creating. And through Jesus and through the Spirit, He was and continues to do so. And then the church, the church that started here in Acts and it continues even until this day with you and I, they're the people who, who find themselves... Plunged with this baptism idea, right? Where it was submerged in the water. They find themselves plunged into this new world with this sense that, that it's starting inside of them. With this sense that even their very being, the very core of who they are, their very personality has been given a, a dose of the Holy Spirit. Has been given the transforming work of God's kingdom. And that God continues to do that within them. And so they they meet and they worship and they study and they they live life with each other. And they find themselves um, being renewed into the image of God. They find themselves loving like they have not loved before. They find themselves forgiving like they have not forgiven before. They find themselves using money like they have not used money before. They find themselves experiencing joy and satisfaction and peace in ways they haven't done before. And Luke says it's because Jesus has resurrected and his people have been given the Spirit. They've been plunged into the river of God's presence and power, his work in creating new things as part of his plan of redemption. So you and I, in 2012, in Sugar Land, Texas, we find ourselves as a church, we find ourselves in in line with with these same people who, who said, he's resurrected, he's alive again. He was dead, and now he's not. The kingdom has been established. God's promises have come true. And in fact, it's it's happening to us. I mean, it's working inside of our hearts. My prayer is that as as we get started here, um, I'm in the book of Acts, that that this week, maybe this morning, um, our our eyes and our hearts in our very selves would be reopened up to reintroduced to this idea this fact this historical event of the resurrection that the, the person we're singing about the person we're celebrating his work when we do communion the person we're remembering is not someone in the grave he's someone who's alive who's reigning right now who's the king of the entire world who's who's interceding on our behalf as our high priest and then the disciples here are asked to, are told really to, to wait for the Holy Spirit, to expect Him, to wait for Him. And I think as Christians, we'll, we'll talk more about this baptism of the Holy Spirit, but as Christians we've been given the Holy Spirit, but I think we still pray for Him. I think we still expect Him. I think we still ask Him to move and to show up and to do powerful things. And so this, this week, this morning, I, I think maybe we, we pray and wait and hope And hold our breath again for the spirit to come and invigorate us. And and waken us up like a cold shower in the morning. And we start seeing the world anew. We start living in the world anew. And we start realizing that the work God is doing to recreate all things. I've made all things new, he says. Has started tremendously, magnificently, I mean surprisingly, within us. Within me. someone messed up, broken with all kinds of problems, but it's it's started. He's moving, he's working, he's loving, he's forgiving. It started in you, and it started in us. And so in Acts, we have the, this first part, this first act of a play. And you and I are, are expected and, and are trying to find our role in that play. I pray that this week we would see... Uh, and and recognize his resurrection and the the spirit that he's given to us. And we'll pick it back up in verse 6 next week uh, and see how the story continues. Let me pray for us. Father, thank you for this day. Thank you for um, the scriptures that you've given us. Thank you for um, the the work um, that you have done for us um, through your son. Thank you for the gift of your spirit, Father. Um, I pray that as we start out this study, that you would bless us as a church and as individuals throughout it, um, that we would uh, be transformed more and more into your people, people who um, are being renewed in the image of their creator, Father. Um, We ask that uh, you would guide us into all life and joy and satisfaction and peace, that we would find in you the ability to die to ourselves, to die to um, our old ways of living to die to our old ways of, of being people and instead find out what it looks like to be your people what it looks like to be alive in the kingdom of god